Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Friends, hello. Jason and I recently presented at an educational session at the IECA Fall 2021 virtual conference. IECA stands for Independent Educational Consultants Association. Um, at Techie for Life, we work with a lot of referring professionals. And so um, we presented at this conference and we decided to go ahead and share that presentation here on our podcast. It's directed to professionals, but I think there's a lot of value here for parents too. You can also view our presentation, if you would prefer, by checking out this episode's page notes at jasondebbie.com forward slash 37. We hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome. We are Jason and Debbie Grigla. I'm a parent coach and Jason is a therapist of 20 plus years and he is also the executive director for Techie for Life. We're excited to be here with you. Um, I'm a therapist, Debbie's a parent coach, but more importantly, we were, we are parents of two young adults who are neurodivergent and who we have helped transition into adulthood. And that's been a long journey. Uh, we also started Techie for Life about seven years ago, and we've got a lot of experience that we've learned um, in the last seven years that we want to talk about today. Um, so we're excited to be here to present to you, and when we're done, we're going to have a great discussion. So thanks for joining us. So the, the trends in neurodiversity right now are that neurodiversity is the whole field of different brains, including neurotypicals. Um, the discussion and the culture is that there is those who are a part of all brains, which is neurodiversity, and then the neurodivergent is the term that they're liking to use now, that I'm neurodivergent. Um, not that I'm neurodiverse. Everyone's got their own brain, but um, that's kind of an interesting trend that's kind of come out lately. And there's a lot of aspects to the neurodiversity field and culture that are changing, crystallizing and growing and um, different voices are coming out. And so I just wanted to discuss a few of those things. The next thing is that autism, um, how someone identifies as autistic. Yeah, the, the trend used to be uh, person first. I'm a person with autism. But actually now the trend is to, to own it, to say, I, this is part of who I am and I'm not ashamed of it. It's not a bad thing. My brain is just different. So they like to be referred to as autistic and they are autistics, if you said in plural. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a, a trend. I'm an autistic, not an autist, which is a little bit different verbiage. So yeah. I would share that with you as well. They don't have one for ADHD, but the, <laughs> I know they're they're looking at it. So that's that's the trend moving that way. And then just the whole neurodivergent umbrella um, is kind of sh changing and, and um, probably not solidified yet. Not not at all. That the the it's not final in any way. And so we have two two spectrum graphs here at the bottom um, on the slides. One is autism spectrum disorder on the left, and you'll see that it has a whole bunch of physiologically different 
neurodevelopmental disorders labeled. Um, and on the left, uh, they don't include bipolar, but on the right, they include bipolar. On the left, they have anxiety, but on the right, they don't include anxiety. Uh, but generally speaking, up until just recently, the DSM and the ICD, they, don't, they didn't have neurodevelopmental disorders as a diagnosis until just the last, um, uh, the, the last publishing of the DSM-5, for example. So under a neurodevelopmental disorder, we have things like autism. And our presentation today is going to be to kind of compare and contrast the differences between a developmental disorder and how to support that and mental health disorders and, and why it isn't working as well to have a mental health approach to a neurodevelopmental disorder. Okay. So traditional approaches to neurodiversity, it's been counseling typically for older um, or, and those with less of an intellectual disability in conjunction with it. So the typical approach is with counseling. It's, um, you know, it's been Asperger's previously and the more intellectually capable they are, the more they end up having symptoms like anxiety and depression because they're neurodivergent stuck in a typical world. They're the the metaphorical square peg being pounded into the round hole. And so they end up with mental health issues and diagnoses. As a matter of fact, those who are neurodivergent are three to six times more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder um, than the normal population. Um, and then that's not a surprise, obviously. But the, the less obviously disabled someone is, the more likely they are to just be put into a mental health bubble and into the mental health pipeline. Um, and especially with how well the mental health culture has gone in, in the IECA and the NATSAP type fields and cultures and families, there's a large mental health approach. Um, every psyche valve that we read, almost everyone has, they need individual counseling intensive, they need family counseling intensive, and then they need medications, which we'll talk about in a second. What we're finding is that our neurodiverse kids and, and our own kids that we, we had to do counseling and counseling and counseling and we did family counseling. We did everything we could to remedy the crises that we were in and it was so ineffective. Um, insight therapy was not helpful. So yeah. And, and it, it sets up, and this is one of the, the challenges and problems with it is when they're, when they're going to counseling, it's not actually addressing the developmental issues that come with their developmental diagnoses. And it can set up um, a feeling of I'm broken and shame around it because they're not getting the successes from those treatments that maybe the typical brained population um, is getting. And so it, it sets up a shame spiral and yeah. And a, as a, a therapist, failure. as a therapist, we end up naturally knowing that they're not going to have a lot of insight. So we do more coaching and more directive, like motivational interviewing, maybe solution focused um, approach. And then we send them away and then they come back a week or two weeks later and they haven't been capable of doing what we've talked about, what they want to do, which they wish, wish they could do to meet their needs and to start dealing with their depression and their anxiety. And they end up coming back feeling like I, not even therapy works. I'm really broken. So, um, the traditional approaches to neurodiversity include medications. And I, 
I think we have some yeah. really good experience with that as well as parents. I mean, it, it has its place. It, it was very helpful when when our boys were younger to, to have them on medications for the tension issues and the, some of the mood challenges and the behavior impulse control um, aspects, but it wasn't actually getting to the cause or the heart or, or what was causing all of that. Um, it was a small piece that helped. It took a little bit of the edge off, um, but like again, focusing on symptoms um, does not actually address what they actually really need support for with their developmental. Yeah, far far too often we see medications um, applied for dealing with behavior, and behavior's just an outcome of where they're at and who they are and what they're feeling and thinking. Um, and so, once again, it's, it can be a good help and support, uh, but it is still a mental health approach or a pharmacological approach, and it can't be the only support and intervention. It does focus just on the symptoms. For example, we, we have a lot of parents that say, well, I, I needed my kid on ADHD medication. Yes, he's autistic or he's just ADHD, but at the same time, they're developmentally lagging far behind their peers, and there's a constant daily struggle to keep up and even learn um, and it's not that they can't focus attention deficit disorders. We know that most of our kids, especially if they're neurodivergent, they can have obsessive focus. Uh, the problem isn't that they can't focus most of the time. It's that they only focus on what's interesting in the moment and then they want to move on um, or they stay obsessively focused all the time. So I don't know how well ADHD works anyway for a lot of our students. So you mean, oh, medication. Oh, medications, medications. I'm sorry. Medication. Yeah. yeah, my bad. So... When we talk about the traditional approaches to neurodiversity in general, um, now that there's an actual diagnosis for neurodevelopmental disorders, it's time to start having the discussions about what are neurodevelopmental interventions. Yeah, so with younger children especially, you're going to see um, like occupational therapy and um, ABA, which is Applied Behavioral Analysis, and these are... Um, typically um, suggested for kids that are younger and have more of an intellectual disability along with their developmental um, diagnoses, developmental disorder. But these are very um, skills-based, performative, task-oriented, um, task external motivational approaches um, that have some benefits and there's actually a lot of pushback on some of these especially with ABA um, that the approach and the, and the way they go about it is actually doing more harm than good in the long run yeah the um, autism community tends to feel like ABA is stealing my uniqueness and my identity and it's forcing me to be come a square peg or a round peg in a round world instead of letting me be authentic the yeah. authentic person and it's actually a really um, triggering kind of topic it's along the lines of COVID vaccine yeah. discussions in so, some of the autism communities. So, but, so it's good to be aware of that and to understand that little piece. It's typically with the younger, yeah. but, um, but then there is still that a lot of behavioral approaches happening for neurodivergent um, adolescents. And um, the problem with that, and you see it over and over, especially when they become young adults is, is there's minimal brain change. It's, it's this external motivator. It's not actually turning, um, helping them develop the skill sets to be able to, to do it. Yeah. So if naturally. we're looking at accomplishments, then you can say, wow, I got them their diploma in high school. 
that doesn't mean they're developed to be able to go into adulthood at all. Or get a job or do... Yeah, or we've got them to get a job. Or, or we've friends. got them to say their ABCs. If, if we get them to, we're already lost um, because there's nothing sustainable about an external change in behavior. And I think most programs know now that behavioral approaches don't work. And yet mental health program, uh, programs and approaches haven't been working all that well either because it's been really hard for a therapist to go walk with their client and do the things that they need to do. Um, for example, in a treatment setting, there's absolutely a need for insight and stabilization and finding the right medications, but that doesn't fix any of the actual problems. That just removes the crises to some extent, but it doesn't meet any needs. Um, and so I think that's what we're gonna talk about more than, than anything else today. Yeah. So. A neurodevelopmental diagnosis um, has a long history, like these disorders do, but they have not been included in previous editions of the ICD or the DSM. And the term applies to a group of disorders of early onset that, that affect both cognitive and social communication development. And they're, they're multifactorial in origin and they have a chronic course with impairment generally lasting into adulthood. So this isn't something you just, um, that comes and goes. It's like not going to be fixed with counseling, for example. Yeah. So when we talk about neurodevelopmental interventions, um, the, the longest standing evidence-based intervention that we have is actually mentoring. It's not CBT. It's not um, psychoanalysis. It's mentoring. It's been there forever. And when we apply something that we call neurodevelopmental mentoring, it's about adding another person to partner with um, the mentee and they end up building a relationship for development, not treatment and not to get them to do actions, but to become. So the goal is a physiological change in the brain, which results in, an in the attributes or the the qualities of being capable, mature, resilient, having self-efficacy, building an identity. Uh, our brains are basically a meat computer. And at the the, attach, the attachment conference I, recent, I recently went to, the same type of trauma that our students experience who are neurodiverse because they're neurodiverse and they get left out, picked on, neglected, um, even even abused, treated poorly because they're different causes a whole nother level of issues. And then the third level of issues is that they learn to, that, to not like themselves, that they're broken, to quit caring about relationships or accomplishments or developmental um, stages because it's been such a negative experience. So basically they shut down, they go into a limbic state, which we'll talk about actually in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but when, when someone is 18, and they've been in crises since they were 13 because of social, emotional, and developmental struggles. Not much development has gone on, and it's really common that they hit a plateau and they stop progressing. Um, and so, you know, when you start to do mentoring and filling in those developmental gaps, then through mentoring and someone walking with them, so that they have that safety and that emotional regulation. We believe in co-regulation is a really great way to think of partnering and mentoring. We're going to talk more about that, but um, mentoring with someone there instead of just talk therapy um, or medication 
is the most effective way to maximize success and minimize minimize the weaknesses in any type of neurodivergent um, struggling situation. And just to go back to the identity, you can be autistic without having an intellectual disability. You can just be quirky um, and still autistic. So what they like to say is, don't don't say higher functioning, lower functioning, right. autistic, because they're offended by the fact that you assume that because I'm autistic, I have an intellectual disability, and that's not accurate. I might not have the same sense of humor. I might like things that you don't like. Um, I might be developmentally delayed, but I'm not disabled. The disability comes if there is an intellectual um, well, they problem. Well, they do own the disability of it, mm-hmm. but the... It, just because someone would be labeled as higher functioning doesn't mean that they aren't struggling and experiencing things that they're maybe just better at like masking it or... So they almost um, think it cheapens to say yeah. higher functioning because, hey, just because I'm higher functioning doesn't mean it's not really all I can do to just survive. Right. So some of them really do know so, that they So it's still being in psyche valves, like different levels sometimes, um, but as a community and like reduce removing shame and really understanding these diagnoses there's a move and a push to not to label which makes it hard because i need to know how much support someone needs so i like the levels one two and three but the autism community is pushing back on that so yeah so so we want you to be aware of, of that trend um, that's happening so factors in neurodevelopment um, we know that neuroplasticity and growth will happen. You can't um, do the same behavior or the same activity and be the same person doing it. You're you're always growing or changing or it's a little bit different each time you do something. And so it's really important to recognize that um, it's not... Nobody's stuck. Nobody's stuck and it's actually experiences and not time that are the major impetus for growth and development. So if I'm, um, say, stuck in the basement gaming 24-7 and that's all I do, and I do that for 10 years, I'm not getting 10 years of development happening, right? I'm doing the same activity and I'm kind of stuck in that same place. Yeah, I want to go back to the growth will happen part. It seems like with, yeah. with some of them, it feels like, yeah, but they've hit a glass ceiling and they aren't growing. They're just growing less, but there is a point where I think most people will hit their glass ceiling of ability if they have a neurodivergent um, diagnosis. In some areas, they're going to hit a glass ceiling. We don't really know what they are, and it's really important to recognize that and just assume that their brain will change. There's two things that happen when we have an experience. We We have an immediate reaction as a person, how we think about it, how we feel about it, what we do about it. But then the brain also has a shift in some way to prepare for the next time it happens. And those are the two things that the brain grows with and neuroplasticity is is related to. Um, So I love that we don't talk about how old you are. We talk about experience. And it's it's really helpful to think too about how um, development is incremental and Meaning that you that stages you can't skip stages stages you can't jump from one developmental stage and leap up to another just because you're at a different age, right? So there, we have to build on things. You can't um, 
usually you can't learn to walk unless you've practiced crawling, right? So there has to be some foundational muscle development and skill development, eye-hand coordination, all these things going on that build for the next level of, okay, now we're walking. Okay, now that gets practiced and now we're running. It's the same thing with social skills and um, Mm -hmm. coping and resilience and self-advocacy and all of those other pieces. It has to be foundational. So an example of that would be if we have a a student who's ready in their parents' minds because they're 19 or 20 and they're ready for a job, but they've never had a group of friends to just goof around with, a job's going to be a major failure and problem because they they haven't had the high school experience yet. So you might have to go back and redo some of those uh, milestones and overcome some of the roadblocks. Um, so they have to be ready to take the next step and want to, it needs to be an internal motivation. Um, but for that to happen, they have to be in a good limbic state. And yeah. So, so when, when we're looking at mentoring, one of the key things to happen is the the person that you're working with, that, that, that you're trying to help, they cannot be in a fight, flight, freeze, trauma, brain, limbic system response, right? That that's like survival mode. And that's not the logical part of our brain. And so, the work of a mentee, like to, to men, uh, the work of a mentor is to, to help them get into a safe state of mind where they can actually, you can tap into their, their logical part of their prefrontal cortex. And, and that's where actual skill development happens. That's where neurodevelopment is really going to happen. Not because they're comfortable and stuck, but because they're okay. I'm okay. I'm not in danger. I'm okay. And I'm, I want to grow instead of I'm in crises and I'm about to drown which means they're not thinking clear. And, yeah, and we're, we're actually trying to develop actual neural pathways. Development isn't just choices of what do I do. Um, a lot of our students can do good things, but then they, they can't consistently do it because the neural pathways aren't there to continue to do something that they were excited about last week, but they aren't excited about it this week. And it was the excitement maybe that made them capable of it for a short time. Yeah. So to be able to get them out of that triggered limbic you know, panic, I'm not safe state, their basic needs have to be getting met. Um, especially as, as they become adolescents and young adults, their social emotional needs and attachment and connection and belonging are critical to their development is to get them and, and to calm that limbic, you know, stress response down. They've got to get those basic needs met. And that is um, a primary focus when you're looking at um, interventions for neurodivergent um, young people. If they're getting close to getting out of high school and moving into independence, even if they're not there yet, the problem is that we see most often is being at home is a trigger. And the frustration and the stress the parents are feeling rubs off on the atmosphere and the student. Um, and then the student reacts poorly. And and so it just becomes a cycle where just because, and, and they know, hey, I'm 18, I get to do what I want, or I'm 16, I should be able to go drive even though I'm not ready, or I'm 21, why are you making me drive when I don't want to? And there's just a lot of dissonance um, between and, those. And parents can't meet those social, pure needs that, that adolescents and young adults have. Parents have a place, but there is that real need to be able to, to be able to go out in the world. You've got to be able to get along with peers and belong with people and that's outside develop, your that's family circle. That's a developmental mm-hmm. necessity. I need my peers to think I'm doing well and I'm enough so that I know that I'm enough because my parents don't count anymore. Yeah. So some of the relation, 
some of the things that work in mentoring is the relationship of influence. And that's what we call it when we build enough of a relationship where the mentee values our input and our influence in their life. And it's totally different than a power differential where one's above and one's below. Um, but if there's a, a deep relationship where they value the influence, then change occurs, fears go down, their limbic system is um, calmed, balanced, mm -hmm. and they're this is kind of a longer term thing. It, it can't happen in three months. Usually it's usually at least a year to do any type of a, of a successful mentor mentee relationship. Um, and so using any type of external have tos, ought tos, musts, shoulds, need tos, punishments is obviously not effective to anybody, but especially to these, to this population, to start where they're at and to work on what they want instead of what they should is really well, critical. And all those shoulds, that pressure, that actually triggers that limbic response where they're not safe because there's judgment there and there's, um, I can't measure up and I'm not able to do it and the pressure of it. So that actually creates a lot of stress um, for them on top of what they're already trying to navigate. So being able to practice and, and work with mentors and be in an environment where they can safely practice different skills and be able to banter, be able to, you know, lead something or be a part of planning something or just um, all the different like activities and things that adolescents and young adults yeah, it's not start about, to get involved in. It's not about did I get you to go on a date. It's about were you ready to go on a date? Did you want to even though you were afraid because it met a need that you wanted and we helped you walk with that. So... We're at 24 minutes. We need to keep going pretty quickly. Got All a few right, more. here we go. So some of the nuances that we want to think about and we want you to think about in a shift from a mental health approach to a neurodevelopmental mentoring approach is to let them be where they're at and like what they like. That doesn't mean it's okay when you're 24 to pull the Legos out on the table if you're with a bunch of college kids and you want to be friends and make friends and fit in. It's important to learn that you're probably going to alienate yourself. But there needs to be a safe place where they can go be themselves, almost like you're putting on an astronaut suit to go out in the typical world, and then you can come home and take off your astronaut suit and be refueled and nurtured back in your, your home base. And, and to recognize that, that that takes some energy. That can be... <laughs> it's a sacrifice, but it's right? worth it if you want to make friends, right? As, as they're trying to fit in, but then also be them. So this one, I love this. Jason just um, came up with this recently. We were trying to describe this, but it's a really an idea of letting them act their stage, not their age. Like really understanding that what stage they're at, what that looks like. So for example, if we've got a kid that um, has been in kind of a outcast, um, struggled in school and didn't have any friends, and then they get into an environment where they do have some friends, It's they're going to look like a junior high kid joking inappropriately or taking it too far or because they're not good at it. But that's actually really developmentally stage appropriate for where they're at to, to see that kind of behavior. And, and we recognize that in an adult program with kids that are sometimes at, okay. at 12, have an 13, eight, 14. An 18-year-old acting like a 12-year-old being too rough, throwing things too hard. Trying to banter way too rough or personal. Or awkward or, yeah, or <laughs> cringy. <laughs> cringy. And, and that, that's a way better swing than no swing at all. So that's appropriate. Yeah. So you're going to um, see the swings going like, because that's how, you know, junior high kids act. So we don't yeah. look at what's, 
what's appropriate for a 21 year old to do. We look at what's the next step developmentally for wherever they're at in their in their development stages. And then the last one, and is probably the most important because we're more similar than dissimilar, is that everyone needs belonging to progress. Development only occurs in our mammal human stage when we belong to a group. And I don't care what they say, they may not need as much social as someone else, but our our students and our children are just as social as anyone else. They just don't know how to do it well sometimes, or they've been burned so many times they back off and pretend they don't need, but they all need yeah. to belong and, and to the And an introvert call. is going to still need close, maybe Friends not as many, not as much, but they're still going to need some, some deep, close relationships. So removing the pressure to do, but focusing on what do they want, even if it's buried. I know they want to date, but they're like, no, I don't want to date. Then we, we start working on that and picking at it. Um, and then we always start with not assuming that they won't, but that they can't. That means that this is an ability issue, not um, a defiance oppositional issue. Yeah. And what's big too is, as, as usual, we want to always have unconditional positive regard. We want to stay curious, compassionate, and connect before we try to do any kind of correction or, or feedback. Or feedback. Um, yep. That's fundamental to be able to hear it and to receive it and to actually utilize it. Right? And then for development to occur, they actually do have to be out of their comfortable comfort zone place, but not overwhelmed. And there's that, that brain growth place right in the middle of, I need something to be different for brain change to occur, but I can't be overwhelmed or the brain shuts down and goes into fight or flight mode. Yeah. And then ultimately, if you're not doing your punishments and rewards and these external motivators, it's it's really about creating an environment where they want to move forward. They want to do things instead of feeling like they have to or doing it out of obligation or um, other people's expectations. But And that's what counseling does. To. But then counseling can't go with them and walk with them. And I think that's the second part of being a mentor, not a therapist, and not just a coach that cheers them on, but someone that walks with them and says, well, let's go do that together. Let's let's text that girl back or let's get on a dating website. Yeah. So we're coming close, close to our recorded time here. Um, you can, we have some resources. Um, we have a free resource, a podcast that we put out weekly um, called Autism and Neurodiversity or yeah, with Jason and Debbie um, on all the typical podcast formats. And we put that out as a free resource um, for parents and professionals. And we want to share things we're learning through the work we're doing here at Techie for Life and in coaching we do. And It's not a marketing piece. It really is no. just at, trying to add value to this, this area that we are passionate about. And I think there's a lot of good yeah. information on there for parents who don't know how to navigate this situation because there's just not a lot out there yet not not a lot of good information yeah so we want to offer that to you and um, you can go to our also our website jasondebbie.com for that free resource well thanks for being here thanks for joining us on this episode of autism and neurodiversity with jason and debbie if you want to learn more about our work come visit us at jasondebbie.com that's j-a-s-o-n-d-e-b-b-i-e.com -E